futures curve inverted in early December 2021, and that meant something pretty bad for the global economy. Now the question is, is it still inverted? And also, why did it invert? And has it inverted previously? What does it all mean, this esoteric measure of interest rates? Well, we have the man that's going to answer all those questions, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome to the show again. Good morning, Emil. As usual, Eurodollar futures, a hot topic, and uh, I know it's one that everybody wants to get into, assuming they can stay awake through it, as we talked about before. Usually when you bring up Eurodollar futures, it can be a little bit less than thrilling. So maybe we can spice it up a little bit with this, with the talking about inversion. You use that same line, Jeff, with your recent interview with George Gammon. You said, oh, who wants to learn about these interest rates and yield curves, boring, boring, boring. But it was a greatly attended live interview. A thousand people almost were on that live stream. Okay, so I think the same is going to be true of this show. Let's do a little bit 101. Eurodollar futures, what are they? And then I'm going to ask you, have they ever inverted before? Yeah, what are they? What did they mean? And the funny thing is, as I was talking about with George, what they mean may not today may not be what they mean in the future which is there are a futures contract tied to three-month LIBOR, where you receive a fictional $1 million Eurodollar deposit, which is instead cash settled. So there's no actual $1 million Eurodollar deposit. Instead, this is basically a future bet on where you think three-month LIBOR is going to be at certain points into the future. It's a futures contract. Therefore, we're talking about future expectations of three-month LIBOR in particular. And why three-month LIBOR? Because three-month LIBOR has, over the 50 or so years that it's been in existence, has become an extremely important, crucial benchmark rate for basically the entire fixed income system around the world. So if it's in U.S. dollars, it's credit, it's debt, it's derivatives, you better believe that three-month LIBOR is at the center of it all. So Eurodollar futures tied to three-month LIBOR, this is a very important market. It's a very important indication. And it's one that the Federal Reserve and regulators around the world absolutely hate and detest for reasons we don't need to get into here. We've talked about it before. And so there's a transition away from LIBOR, maybe. So long as LIBOR is still being priced in, at the Intercontinental Exchange, we can still talk about Eurodollar futures, which relate to three-month LIBOR, which, by the way, there's a reason why LIBOR and Eurodollar futures are used in these futures contracts, because we're talking about, most important of all, London interbank offered rate, euro dollar deposits. These are offshore US dollar denominated monetary and financial products. So it's basically the center of the center of the center of the global reserve currency universe, euro dollar futures, three month life. The people at the Eccles building will be very surprised to learn that they are not the center of the center of the center <laughs> yeah, of the monetary universe. I think universe. they know, Emil. They just don't want to, they don't want anybody else to know. Which, in a nutshell, is why they don't want LIBOR to exist much longer. You talked about that on the show with George, and I feel like we need to talk about Eurodollar futures but, and what they're doing now. But forgive me for going back to that interview with George. You talked about the fact that we are transitioning to a new rate away from LIBOR, for the reasons you explained, to something called SOFR, maybe. Did you talk about what might happen to Eurodollar futures? Because Jeff, as you just explained, they're based on LIBOR. And if LIBOR is going away, this is in a tiny market. If I understand it correctly, interest rate derivatives would be the biggest market in the world, nominal value, then currencies, and then 
in this different category of financial instruments, I believe Eurodollar futures have been called the largest market in the world. And all of a sudden, the thing that they're based on is going away. Have you heard anything about what might happen to Eurodollar futures once LIBOR is pushed off the cliff? Well, I'm still not convinced that's the case, even though the market has by, you know, by hook and by crook been forced to use other rates. And in fact, the Federal Reserve and U.S. bank regulators have said, going back to 2014, when they formed the ARRC to develop a competing benchmark or an alternative benchmark to LIBOR, they have said, we want you to use SOFR, the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, SOFR. And the banking system has said repeatedly, no, we're not going to use SOFR because it makes absolutely no sense. It is not a replacement for the whole suite of LIBOR tenors. Why the hell would you be making us use this unsuitable interest rate? And there's been this tug of war back and forth all the way until last year when regulators with egg all over their face, having pushed back deadlines already once, said, all right, December 31st, 2021 is a drop dead date. And then in the middle of the year, they said, well, it's only a drop dead date for two of the LIBOR tenors that nobody uses, the two-week LIBOR as well as another one. And then they said, well, basically, we're not going to ban LIBOR, but if anybody uses LIBOR, any American bank that's under regulatory authority uses LIBOR, we're going to come down very, we're going to make your life miserable. We're going to subject you to all sorts of, we're going to make it really uncomfortable for you to, to engage in, in actual business which is sort of their way of pressuring people to use an alternative. Now, what the market said is, yeah, you've been forcing the software rate on us and we're not really sold on it. So some participants have turned to something called term SOFR, which is not a, a suitable replacement, in my opinion, and I think the market agrees with me, not really a replacement to LIBOR either. Well, others have turned to something called Bisbee, which is a product put together by Bloomberg, as well as something called Ameriribor that's been on the American exchange for a while. And I wouldn't doubt if at some point somebody cobbles together another set of competing rates that are even more perhaps private and convoluted, but maybe more suitable as an alternative to LIBOR because essentially what the regulators have demanded isn't a really good enough replacement. So where does Eurodollar futures fit into all this? Well, what's happening is by June 30th of 2023, which is next year, about 18 months from now, 17 months from now, what the regulators have demanded is that the Intercontinental Exchange no longer will provide LIBOR pricing whatsoever. They were forced in the middle of last year to concede this concession, essentially, because the banking system said, you can't just shut down LIBOR at the end of last year. I mean, that, that just isn't going to work. Even if we can't do new loan products and new contracts based on three-month LIBOR because you don't want us to, we still have to price this Bushel flow. I mean, this absolute enormous amount of fixed income and derivative products based on three-month LIBOR. Because number one, even though we've been talking about this for an entire decade, we still haven't settled on any of the fallback provisions that allow us to transfer from LIBOR to the next interest rate benchmark. So as it pertains specifically to Eurodollar futures, they're still tied to three-month LIBOR until the exchange regulators and market participants all come up with a suitable fallback provision that allows it to seamlessly transition from three-month library to whatever the next rate will happen to be. And the fact that that hasn't been done before now is a huge indication, a huge red flag that just how unsuitable this whole process has been. So the answer for Eurodollar futures to what is it going to go, what's the next benchmark going to be, we don't really know what that is at this point. And furthermore, it's just anticipated that once that's decided on and once the fallback provisions are defined in the legal contract language on uh, July 1st of 2023, it'll be a different rate and everything will go smoothly. For any 
new listeners to Euro Dollar University that are still hanging around. God bless you. Thank you very much. We were going to tell you why Euro Dollar futures were important and why they, if they're inverted, what does that mean for the global economy? And then we went down a rabbit hole that was just for our existing listeners. Hopefully they found it interesting. For any new listeners that are still with us, Jeff, we explained what Euro Dollar futures were. And now just to give us a couple of moments in time when the euro dollar futures curve inverted and then we'll talk about the the december version when it did inverted and then we'll talk about where we are today well the euro dollar futures curve that we keep referring to refers itself to when you look at the contract prices spaced out by three month intervals all the way into the future when you factor in the index and the price of the contracts and you come up with essentially a money curve that looks like a money curve which means it's supposed to be upward sloping. So you started at a smaller or a lower immediate projection of three-month LIBOR close to where it is today, and then it goes up from there. At least that's how it's supposed to look because money curves, the beauty that's embedded inside them, this optimism about the future, we always think ahead and we think things are gonna be good, things are gonna be better. And contrary to what everybody's been taught, Higher rates, especially when you're in a low rate regime, higher rates are actually a good sign. They're actually a signal that the market is saying, we're very optimistic about the future, so we think interest rates are gonna be upward sloping all the way past the foreseeable time horizon. So it doesn't have to be very steep, but upward sloping is normal, it's healthy, it's good. If we see an inverted curve, that simply means that Euro dollar futures at some point along the way, no longer are upward sloping, that curve then starts to bend and kink. And in some places, it might even turn upside down where the contracts become entirely misaligned. So you have the price of one closer to the current day, actually less than the price of one that's a little bit further down the curve, which means sort of a probability distribution where the market is saying, we're not so certain that interest rates are gonna continue upward into the future, that things are gonna be awesome and healthy and nice, and normal, we actually think there's a chance and we're starting to actively hedge against some non-specific future currents wherein something bad happens, where interest rates that were supposed to go up suddenly maybe have a chance of going down. We don't know when that is. For now, all we know is in the slightly inverted euro dollar futures curve, that tells us that the market is actively hedging in this very deep, liquid, sophisticated market for some unforeseen or unknowable bad set of circumstances where the probabilities are too much to ignore that we have to hedge against them right now. Now, it doesn't mean something's imminent. It doesn't mean the recession's going to happen tomorrow. It just means that the curve has changed. The entire market perception has changed such that the more intermediate and longer run perceptions about three-month LIBOR, this key benchmark interest rate, have changed that in a way that makes the curve inverted or kinked or what flattened. It's, it's non-normal, it's ugly. It's a very, very definitive and historically validated signal of rising uncertainty at, at best, if not rising concern and alarm at worst. The proof is in the pudding. 2006 inversion, a little bit over a year later, we have the great global financial crisis. 2018 inversion, a little bit over a year and a half later, we have another global financial crisis brought about by COVID. Here we are again in late, no, early December 2021, and the curve inverted. And he told us, you know, it's a warning. Something's wrong in the future where we should be concerned. But going forward for the next few weeks, there should be dull. There shouldn't be any sort of excitement. 
Is that what came to pass? There was no excitement in the euro dollar futures curve. And then where are we now? Yeah, as we say, Emil, these things are processes. Even a market crash like 2008 wasn't a just you know one off. It hit everybody all at once. Surprise. It actually had been coming and it had been working. The markets had been working in that direction for two years before it happened. So when we talk about these inversions, we talk about you know down cycles and, and deflationary cycles and all that. It doesn't mean that, okay, the curve is inverted. Hello, nightmare. It doesn't work that way. And so these are multi-month, if not multi-year processes where the market is starting to you know, tease out and price and look at and evaluate and analyze the set of realistic market factors as well as real economic factors around the world. And right now it looks like balance of probabilities, things are tilting toward the downside. That's really what this initial version is. Like we may have some suspicions about a downside, but now we're starting to see them become confirmed. So at this early stage, we're getting this, this impulse, this urge to start hedging against the downside case. Now, Jeff, I'm going to read from your blog post, by the way. This is where we're getting all the, our discussion points, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to read along, go to the Alhambra Partners website. Go to the January 14th post, and it was called Eurodollar Futures Curve Update. Spoiler, still inverted. There we go. Spoiler. Jeff. The Eurodollar futures curve is probably wrong. And who do I turn to for this guidance? The FOMC, as you explained, <clears throat> the FOMC says consumers are normalizing to high CPIs, inflation expectations, and the unemployment rate pictures a very tight labor market absolutely brimming with wage and therefore inflation potential. So the Eurodollar futures market is wrong unless this is just astrology that the FOMC is. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's, that's funny because, you know, we, we bring this up time and again, every time the euro dollar futures curve inverts, the FOMC waves their arms and says, ah, we can't pay attention. The famous quote that was at least famous for us and, you know, our euro dollar community from Bill Dudley in 2007, when he said, you know, the euro dollar futures curve had inverted before we ever saw the crisis in 2007. And here's Bill Dudley saying to the FOMC, oh, we can't take the futures curve at face value because it means that nobody's taking the other side of the trade. And it's one of those things where you say it is one of the most absurd things for anybody to say. Yeah, that's the point. The fact that nobody's taking the other side of the inversion trade means the market agrees with the inversion trade. The fact that it sticks around is the market saying, whatever we were worried about sort of non-specifically a couple months ago, it started to become more and more specific. And that's really the point I was trying to make when when the first inverted, I think it was December 1st, right, Emil? I mean, the first day yes. of December, we saw this inversion. Everybody chalked it up to Omicron fears and whatnot. But you could see the Eurodollar futures curve flattening long before that point, going back into October, actually. So way long before Omicron. And when it finally inverted, what I wrote was, okay, put that thing in your back pocket. It's inverted, but it's probably not going to do much for any. It's going to be boring and uninteresting. It's probably stay a little bit inverted maybe fluctuate around that level for the foreseeable future. So it's really not something you need to watch every day, let alone every minute, because history says this is a multi-month, if not longer process where the market needs to store out incoming information, incoming changes in character of the, the markets as well as the economy. And if that incoming information validates what the, the fears or concerns that initially inverted the curve, then you'll see the curves start to invert a little bit more. And that's when things actually start to get really interesting. But so for this, you know, it's only been what, six, seven weeks now since it inverted. So we're still in that initial phase where it's just kind of a little tiny bit kinked. 
our point overall is the fact that it's inverted at anywhere around the curve is, is that initial warning sign. So we're kind of sitting here watching it, not expecting too much out of it for the immediate future, waiting for it to either go away or for it to simply reach that point where it says something's all those concerns that have first inverted back in December, those are being validated one after another and after another. And so the balance of probabilities of the future case aren't just tilted a little bit to the downside, they're sort of sweeping toward the downside. And that's where we get into the 2018 as well as the 2006, 2007 example, which was about six or seven months into the inversion. The graph that I've pulled up now with my magic editing abilities shows the euro dollar curve over at different points in time starting with December 3rd, where it was at its greatest kink or sometime thereafter. Because in the first few days, like a week after, it got even more kinked following the initial turndown. Yeah, the first couple of days we had this unmute, which I mean, I said, hey, this thing is going to invert a little bit and then just nothing will happen. And of course, two days later, inverted it by several basis points, which in the dollar futures land is a pretty stark and substantial move. And then it kind of just went back to normal. So it was the initial inversion was interesting, but then it went into its boring. I'm just a little tiny bit inverted. But, but, but by the way, that's where we are this morning. This is what, January 21st, the Eurodollar futures curve still inverted. It's actually inverted a little bit more than it was when I wrote that article, but not a whole lot. It's still in that same general area of the curve. It's still there, which is kind of the overriding point I was trying to make, which is, in this initial phase where it's just a tiny little bit inverted, all we're looking for is whether or not it sticks, whether or not it sticks around for more than just a couple of days or something. And here we are, January 21st, 2022, talking about an inversion that showed up in December 1st of 2021. So, so far, yeah, it's sticking around, which goes along with a whole bunch of other stuff that we talk about in fixed income and bond markets across the world. So, yeah, it's still there. People looking at this graph will notice that the yield curve itself has shifted upwards. And I want to ask you about that, but I want to ask you that question in part two of this episode when we're going to be talking about yield curves and Fisherian deconstruction and what the yield curve means, if it's higher, lower, how it's shaped, how its nominal rates are growing. So we'll save that discussion for part two. Before we go, Jeff, though, you did give us a very helpful do-it-yourself couple of links so for people that are interested in finding out how the yield curve looks themselves, instead of waiting for you to update us, they can go to, again, this title is Eurodollar Futures Curve Update, spoiler, still inverted. And at the end of the article, you provide a couple of links where people can go and build their own Eurodollar Futures Curve. Jeff, anything else on this topic before we move on to part two? No, just briefly, people all the time ask where they can find to find the prices for these contracts and do exactly what you just said, Emil, which is build their own curve. And yeah, it's, it's some of these contract prices, they're kind of hard to find. You don't see them. It's not like you can look, pull them up on Yahoo Finance or any of the, the mainstream media sites. Obviously, you can find if you have access to Bloomberg, you can get the prices there. But if you have bar charts, they actually do have historical prices. They're going back to the year 2000, by the way, as a wealth of data at bar chart. And so there are other places around the world, if around the internet. If you're just interested in looking at the, the just the current price of all the contracts up and down the curve, CME does 10-minute delayed sort of real-time pricing data for you there. As, as you said, Emil, the links are at the end of the article. So you know, I don't plan on updating the Eurodollar futures curve regularly unless something changes. It, for now, again, it's our thesis is, hey, it, it inverted in December. That's a warning sign, but we're still in this a multi-month initial process. 
So as long as it sticks around inverted, we know we're still within, we're still moving in the wrong direction, even if it doesn't really change much between now and whenever the next phase actually begins. And that might be, that might be several months from now. We, we, we might not even talk about the euro dollar futures curve, except by say, hey, it's still inverted a little bit for the next four, five, six, who knows, several months. Interest rates, they're going up in the U.S. Treasury bond market. That means the economy is on the rebound. Things are looking more optimistic. Reflation, recovery, maybe. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I'm going to talk to Jeff Snyder, the head of global research of our Humber Partners. Jeff, I almost called you George Gammon because we're going to be talking about George Gammon again. We talked about him in part one of this episode, and I can't get enough. I want more, George. More. I don't believe it because George is a very engaging guy, right? I mean, I yes. mean, he's really interested in learning about this stuff. I thought it was terrific of him to say exactly you were just setting this episode up as is, hey, bond yields at the long end have risen. Hooray. That, that means inflation, right? The, the market has changed its mind. And then uh, we discussed all the ways that that's probably not the case. You know, that's where we begin is that we have this, most people have no idea about the yield curve and interest rates at all. In fact, we talk about all the time, the interest rate fallacy, they've got everything upside down. So it's not surprising that most people have trouble trying to interpret the bond market, the yield curve, something that's really so basic to fundamental finance, which just goes to show you how terrible a job the uh, profession and discipline of economics has done uh, generating any kind of real useful financial literacy. And the university system. I'm not going to let them oh, go yeah. by unscathed. The universe, it starts from where you start in college or the university, and it goes all the way up through the, your everyday adult life or the financial media, simply parrots what central banks tell them, even though they can't make sense, hide or tail of what's actually going on in the system. The yield curve in particular is always a source of confusion and conundrum, when in reality, it's actually very simple. But it's not as simple as Interest rates down equals bad. Interest rates up equals good. There's more to the story. And that's really where we are today. You made a funny comment in this article that the officials know enough about bond markets that they want to change the subject. The article itself that I'm referencing is called Good Time to Go Fishering Around the Yield Curve, posted at Alhambra Partners on the 1st of, not the 1st, the January of the 20th of the 2022 Okay, Jeff, you said there are three variables that we need to keep in mind when we're looking at the yield curve. Variable number one, the relative nominal level. Variable number two, the relative direction of the change in yields. And number three, the curve's shape. Let's talk about number one very quickly, which is the relative nominal yield. Higher is better and lower is worse. Yeah, it's, well... Possibly. <laughs> Again, this is there's a little bit of complexity and nuance to it, right? But, you know, just taking a view from a 30,000 foot level, looking down on the yield curve, we see the yield curve with maxes out around the 30 year at a little bit over 2%. That's ugly. That's awful. That's not good. Doesn't matter well how it's changing in the immediate term. You know, longer run, you see a curve that low and flat. That's indicative of only economic and financial problems, downside cases, and too much deflation probability. So relatively speaking, if the yield curve is changing, even if it's changing more favorable in those other two criteria, if it still doesn't really change out of its low shape, there's already a red flag there. We're already saying, that, okay, yeah, maybe it's improving, 
But is this really an actual meaningful improvement? You're spoiling the whole the whole show, Jeff. Because yes, that's the that's the bottom line. But if we were just to isolate, okay, there are other bottom lines. If we were just to isolate this one variable, is that generally a good rule of thumb for an advanced economy? If we see interest rates higher in the future than lower, that's my predisposition. And I think that's what George's was. And now we're going to add in variable two and three. But is, do I have that right? Because I don't want the audience going around there saying this to strange people on the street saying nominal interest rates are up. That's a good thing. I want it to make be. sure that's, we're all that's right. That's where we're starting. It, nominal interest rates going up could be a good thing if all these other criteria are met. And one of those good. criteria, the first one is, are interest rates rising to a relatively normal range? You think about it this way. If the yield curve looks more like the curve in Japan than it does the United States in the 1990s, things are not going right. Things are not changing meaningfully for the better. And by the way, spoiler alert, the yield curve in the U.S., even today, after this massive sell-off that you've heard about in the media, which is just a tiny blip of a market fluctuation in any kind of real context, we are nowhere near the 1990s yield curve in the United States or any healthy curve anywhere around the world at any point in history that you would associate with healthy economic financial circumstances. We are still much, much closer to the Japan scenario than not. So right away, we start out with criteria number one, we're in the low Japan-like state. Hmm. And so the question becomes, we're in the Japan-like state, are we transitioning out of it? And that's where these other two criteria come in. Are they telling us we're leaving Japan and going back toward normal or in the minds of many around the world who are screaming at the top of their lungs about this bond route, are we leaving Japan, not for normal and healthy, but for the 1970s inflation? And that's where these other two parts of the curve come into. Gosh, Jeff, I'm surprised because I've been told that Japan is experiencing lost decades. Some have even called it a depression. And yet recently from the White House, the American White House, I have been told that the last year was the greatest growth in jobs and economic activity possibly on record in human history. So that those two things don't coincide, but maybe I misunderstood. Let's move on to variable number two then, the relative direction of any change in yields. And here you say we need Fisherian decomposition, short-term rates, long-term rates. What are they pricing in? Well, Irving Fisher over a century ago, and I think we've repeated this mantra of Quite a bit over recent months. When the Federal Reserve, for a good reason. yeah, well, the Fed's not watching the show, Jeff. Maybe they didn't watch the one of the previous episodes. So let us repeat it yeah. until they watch the show. Irving Fisher, early twentieth century, said long-term bond yields are a combination of growth and inflation expectations. They're that simple. So growth and inflation expectations, which means we can kind of decompose them into parts. Now, mainstream economics likes to add a third part, which is called term premiums which we're not going to bother with because that's an entirely made up thing to allow economists to fit bond yields somehow into their econometric models. And we don't need to go into the details behind that. If you're interested, I left a link in the article where I discussed why term premiums are utter crap and they're simply a made up Orwellian type term to allow economists to claim low interest rates or something that they're not. So we have this decomposition where bond yields are a combination of growth and inflation expectations, which also means they have to incorporate the yields in front of them. So if you're a 10-year treasury, you, you've got growth and inflation expectations, as well as what are the nominal short-term yields in, that, in a given time period. 
So it's really a combination of growth and inflation expectations on the one part, and then the future projected path of short-term rates on the other. Put those two things together, you've got the long-term bond yield. You say growth and inflation expectations, just to make sure I've got it in my head correctly. Growth is economic activity. And then we, we say inflation. We don't mean consumer price increases. Do we, Jeff? We mean monetary expansion. Is that what bonds are pricing in? Monetary expansion. Yeah, again, we're talking about, you know, again, in terms of the, the uh, interest rate fallacy, the idea that, you know, demand for safe and liquid instruments, which U.S. Treasuries certainly qualify for reasons of liquidity more than credit worthiness. Anyway, safety, liquidity characteristics, when they're in high demand, you're not going to see nominal opportunities in the real economy very strong. Therefore, as you just said, Emil, we're talking about monetary inflation, nominal growth in the economy, what it actually looks like outside of consumer prices that might be, as now, being moved by factors that aren't that have nothing to do with the monetary system. Now, Jeff, all of that discussion, I believe, belongs to the medium to long-term outlook, in my mind, five to 10 years or so. But did you discuss it? Maybe I missed it. What about the short end? You say here in this article, it's the expected path of short-term rates, which would then we would turn to our favorite central bankers because they seem to be moving around the short-term interest rate. So is, is that correct? Yes. The short end is influenced by the fact that the Federal Reserve, even though it's not a central bank, does <laughs> offer investment alternatives. And these days that means something like IOER or the reverse repo, which helps the Fed define its federal funds target rate. So if you were holding a two-year treasury, for example, and it's yielding, say, 50 basis points in yield, and, the, and you think the Fed is going to do four rate hikes over those two years, suddenly you could get a 1% rate at some point in the future on nothing more than the IOER RRP. Are you going to hold a two-year treasury even if you think it's priced relatively well at 50 basis points? No, the two-year treasury is going to adjust for these alternative investment considerations the Fed is going to use in setting its monetary policy. So the short end of the yield curve in many ways, especially when we get into these changes in rate hikes or rate cut cycles, the short end of the yield curve is highly influenced by what the Fed is expected to do. Not just what it's done, what it's done in the recent past, but what is expected to do based on obviously signals the Fed is sending, speeches, proclamations, forecasts, public, published forecasts, anything. So if we expect the Fed to raise its, its, these investment alternative programs that it offers, it's going to affect especially the short end of the yield curve. And in what we see historically, as we talked about before in these conundrums, that is the only factor that affects the short-term end of the yield curve. Okay, for variable one, we gave an example. Variable one was the relative level of nominal yields, 1990s versus the post-2008 experience. Now let's give an example for variable two, the relative change in direction of nominal yields. And here in this article, you say from the lows of August 2020 to the highs of March 2021. What did we experience? What did it mean for variable two? Emil, that was the good one, right? Mm -hmm. That was, okay, we're, we, don't, we don't meet criteria number one because the curve is low and flat. In fact, in, in August of 2020, it was as low and flat as it has ever been. In fact, it was so low and flat, it wasn't even a curve, but it was changing. It was changing, right? Nominal rates were rising. So we saw, okay, that's a good sign. And we saw that most of that rise in nominal rates 
wasn't because of short-term, the expected future path of short-term interest rates. It was because of growth and inflation expectations. So the yield curve steepened. That's the magical happiness pathway to normalcy that we want to see. We want to see, even though criteria number one is bad, criteria number two, the curve is essentially steepening out. Interest rates are rising for the right reason that are not the Fed. They're for growth and inflation perception. Now, where we combine those two criteria together is that that process topped out March of last year, almost a year ago. It topped out at an incredibly low level. So it was better than 2020, but only marginally better than 2020. So in 2021, what the curve was saying was, we're not changing from a Japan scenario to a normal scenario. It just means that we're no longer at the extreme low end of the Japan scenario and that the future may be not as bad as 2020 had been, which was an incredibly low standard to judge against. But that's really what the curve was saying. That's nothing to celebrate. It's uh, like saying, well, I feel better now that I... I'm not getting a roundhouse to the left kidney. Great, great. That's no improvement. I mean, exactly. well, it's an improvement, but all right, it's I'm still sore. Improve- and that's why we use these multiple categories of criteria. It's a relative improvement, but it was not a categorical change. Now, a beautiful work of art, ladies and gentlemen, a graph that is just captures everything here. We're going to pull that up. And Jeff, we're going to move on to variable number three and use this graph so that we can provide people with an example. And again, variable number three is perhaps the key one, the more most important one, maybe, maybe. I think so. I, I think you agree with me, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that, that's we talk about a curve shape. Mm-hmm. Okay, nominal yields seem easy enough, but it's all, to me, the more important variable is always curve shape, steep mm. or flat. Now, I, let's, let's preface this section by saying that the yield curve should not be steep. It should always be relatively flat, but as long as it's in that, that normal range of criteria number one, right. a flat curve at a normal nominal level is actually a good sign. But the, we aren't there. We're in the Japan scenario. Right. So let me just interrupt. Once we've recovered, we should see a flat curve. Yes. But during recovery, get there to get there <laughs> is when we see the steep yield curve. And yes, if it's and that missing. Was the curve, right. I mean, that then, was the curve last year. Okay. The early 2021 curve, nominal rates were rising. Our third criteria, the yield curve was steepening. So even though we were still in the Japan scenario, it looked like in early 2021, there was at least a small plausible probability that maybe things were normal. We were moving in the right direction. The bond market was becoming a bit more optimistic. The problem is that it topped out as such a, at a low rate. And ever since March 2021, Things have gone in the opposite direction, especially in terms of criteria number one and criteria number three. Right. Okay. So we're looking at this graph now, Jeff. We have from, uh, let's see, August through February. What month are we in? January 2022. So from August 2020 through January 2022, different tenors of the U.S. Treasury yield curve, the, the short term and the long term. And then you've done a Fisherian decomposition short-term rates and long-term rates, and we now know what they represent, and you've drawn arrows, and we've just discussed part one, well, the low point, and then where we were in March, and now we've had an intermission, and now we're at a point where, yes, the nominal yield is higher. Good news. Slightly. (laughs) I know. Let's talk about that, too. I mean, 
The way you hear about it in the media, you'd think that the interest rates have skyrocketed. As of as it stands today, the 10-year Treasury yield is exactly the same as what it was in March of 2019. Let me repeat that. The 10-year Treasury today is about one basis point off of where it was in March of 2019. So for what is that? 10 months, 10 months, it's gone one basis point higher. That's not how it's characterized or talked about in the media. And then, of course, what we're really talking about is all these other curve dimensions that you need to take into account that help us explain why that is, what's really going on here. Okay, so the last bar that it corresponds to where we are today with this yield curve shows we've had a massive increase in the expected path of short-term rates. Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, even in the in Europe. Yeah. Hawks are everywhere. They're flying all around, right? When you plot all of these parts of the yield curve on the chart, as I've done here, showing you here, you can absolutely see these various these parts of the long-term yields, these, this Fisherian decomposition. The expected path of short-term rates, especially since around October, you see it clearly in the two-year Treasury yield, they have gone up by a lot. And that makes perfect sense because Jay Powell Every chance he gets, along with all the other Federal Reserve members, along with all the other financial media are saying, rate hikes, rate hikes, rate hikes, rate hikes, rate hikes. And the market is saying, yeah, we agree. You are going to raise rates. We're going to adjust the short end of the yield curve because you are going to raise rates. But that doesn't mean that the Fed is right in why it's raising its rates. And that's where we get into the other part of the yield curve decomposition, which is when you subtract off this large increase in the expected future path of short-term interest rates, what's left over for growth and in inflation expectations in the nominal long year, you know, the 10-year or the 30-year long bond has shrunk, has shrunk considerably over the last couple of months. So even though nominal yields are rising in the long end of the yield curve by a little bit, they aren't really rising all that much, even over the last couple of weeks, even over the last four weeks, they're up maybe what, 40 basis points from their low? That's not a big move. But even though they're higher, the yield curve is flattening, the future breaking down yields by the Fisher's work, we see that most of it, in fact, the majority of it has been the, the expected future path of short-term rates, which means growth and inflation expectations in these yield curve today are falling. They're, they're getting worse. They're not getting better. So yes, it's, I guess it's a question then of who do you trust? Do we trust the centralized, highly credentialed authorities who say the economy looks brighter and it's very tight labor market and there's inflation, we see it in consumer prices, therefore we have to raise interest rates, or do we trust, as you called it, the undefeated bond market with those long-term expectations? Jeff, for people that are looking at this graph, I just wanted to, maybe, maybe they'll think the same thing I did, because I wanted to quibble about that first bar, the second bar, you increased the short-term rates a lot relative to where they were in August by March 2021. Is that because you were looking at the five-year? Is that what you're interpreting as the short-term? Because I would think it would be the two-year, and the two-year really didn't change that yeah, much. I would think the second bar that you drew that long-term expectations should have been much wider and short-term were still almost, I would say, unchanged, almost unchanged. Tell me if I am misinterpreting. Well, you can interpret, I mean, this, there's, you know, this, we're not using mathematical precision here. We're sort of saying judgment. Yeah, you're right. I looked at the five-year as well as the two-year, and the fact that the two-year didn't move meant that short, the expected path of short-term interest rates across the entire curve probably didn't move all that much, certainly not in their immediate projections. 
But the fact that the five-year did move up suggests that the market was thinking, even in late 2020 and early 2021, that interest rates were not going to stay at zero forever. So yes, we went from a period where in August of 2020, everything was low and flat. The expected future path of short-term rates was awful. And so there was some slight improvement. It wasn't much, but it was some. And maybe I have overrepresented it just for the, for the purposes of illustration on the chart. And you're great. I'm so glad you pointed that out for me. Just people, but, you know, yeah, there maybe was, I think so we there can was, all learn. Um, no, you're right. I mean, we should, there was some degree of increase in the expected path of short-term interest rates. How, I mean, you're right. It wasn't much. It wasn't a huge deal, but there was something there. And I wanted people to see that, yeah, I think there was a, that was part of the uh, yield curve expansion up until March of 2021. I think it would even uh, buttress your case more to bring down that short-term uh, bar in the second bar, bring it down, because then it would show how much long-term expectations have been shrinking with your measures from March to October to January. Jeff, okay, well, as long as we're complaining. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm helping. You know, the There's only... Always, hey, remember hey, how we started out this, this segment of the show. You guys say interest rates fall is bad. So interest rates are rising. It must be good. <laughs> so in terms of complaints, I think that's the biggest one. I, I've got, it's not a, all right, criticism. It's a critique. It's a personal assault on your character, Jeff. No, what I want to say is, you know, which graph is missing here is the one that you did a good number of times, I think last year, is the one that shows the relative increase in yields relative to the previous inflations. And I think that would be variable number two. That would help people see, aha, yes, it's gone up in a good direction, but compared to the previous reflations, 2009 to 2011, 2012 to 2013, 2016 to 2018. And that would bring home again, how even variable two even though it was heading in the positive direction from August 2020, compared to what we had seen before, there's not a lot of beef there, as we used to say in the 80s. That's usually criteria. That's, you know, that's criteria number one, judge against criteria number two. Criteria number two, interest rates are rising, but they aren't even rising as much as they did previously, as you just said. And I mm. think that's, that's an important point that says we're still in the Japan scenario. We're still closer to the Japan scenario than anything not. And you go back three years to 2017, 2018, 2019, you know, where rates, you know, the 10 year yield got up to three and a quarter percent and everybody, oh, the highest rate in seven years. This is obviously a, a regime change in the bond market. When is, again, if you use criteria one and number three, you would have seen that that wasn't really the case. It was good while it was positive, I suppose, that uh, nominal rates were rising. That was mostly the short end two. Is exactly the same process. The Fed was hiking rates, pressuring the short end of the yield curve, which was resisted in its longer term inflation and growth expectations, as well as these low nominal levels that it topped out as, which suggested that, no, this was not a meaningful change in the bond market. The only thing that had changed in 2018 was the Fed. And that's really our lesson here today. The only thing that has changed in the bond market between last year's more optimistic take and this year's less optimistic take, even though nominal rates are somewhat rising in both time periods, the only thing that has changed is the Fed. Fantastic. That's exactly how you ended the article, Jeff. I wanted to read it out 
and you did it again. You said the only thing that's changed is the Fed again. Here, let me read the first part of that quote. All we can definitively conclude for now is that there is and has been no change in the bond market perceptions about the balance of future probabilities that with low nominal levels and an increasingly flat shape, they are tilted decidedly toward the not inflation and unfavorable for whatever the latter might end up. Very good, Jeff. We're going to move on to part three, which involves supply chains, chicken wings, the Buffalo Bills. What else? China. This is fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the potpourri portion of this episode of Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, and me, Emil Kalinowski. We're also known as the Buffalo Bills fan and the New England Patriots fan of the American Football Leagues. And guess what? One of those teams beat the other team. Which team? <laughs> it's not important. But Oh, suddenly it, you don't want to get into that. <laughs> we're going to be talking. I bring it up because... That's how Jeff opened up an article over at Real Clear Markets. The title of the article is The PBOC is doing the opposite of the Federal Reserve. And it was posted on the 21st of January, 2022. PBOC, the, how the hell do we get into football and chicken wings here? The I whole, think I must have been insane or something. Temporarily the whole insane. first page is about the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> it's four pages of economic writing. Three and a half. This one, two, three and a half. Normally it's four full pages of money, inflation, quotes by Milton Friedman. But the whole first page is about the Buffalo Wings and about, well, it's that thing. Jeff, if you're from San Francisco and someone comes there and says, how is, what's the temperature in Frisco? Oh, it's, it's jarring. Same thing in the Cayman Islands. If someone says, how are the Caymans? Oh, like nails there's, on a chalkboard, right? And there's this, I learned that there's something very, very similar in Buffalo when it comes to chicken wings and buffalo wings, wings as I refer to them. Tell me, tell me, what am I doing wrong? But as everybody knows or should know, the current incarnation of chicken wings that people eat by the millions was invented and perfected at a place called the Anchor Bar in Buffalo. And it's still, it's a nice little spot even today. It's, you know, sort of nostalgic to go see where the chicken wing got its start. But you don't call them chicken wings, nor do you call them buffalo wings, because those are essentially tautologies. You just call them wings. They're just wings. No need to say chicken. No need to say buffalo. Those things go together. Like inflation. Only an idiot would call yes. it monetary inflation. <laughs> yes. Well, you were giving it to me pretty bad in the previous segment. Yeah, and that's because I've been I've been hitting you over the head with monetary inflation like buffalo wings. It just nails on a chalkboard. Ladies and gentlemen, I promise this has something to do with economics. And we're going to learn about something called the National Chicken Council and yeah, that there's a no, shortage right? of chicken <laughs> and that prices of chickens are going up and blah, blah, blah. It's all going to be very fascinating. But Jeff, before we get into the meat of it, go ahead and let me know. I didn't catch the games this weekend. What what happened? Anything important? Well, I think there was a historic performance by the good guys, the Buffalo Bills in this case, who, just to give people a little back, a little bit of background, if you're not familiar with National Football League, American football, as well as the particular with this one team in Western New York, they had been tormented over a two-decade-long period, two-decade-long period by this team in New England, or at least calling itself New England really Boston, yeah. where 
Presumptuous. Since I believe, wasn't it the, the, the Bills had beaten the Patriots a, a five out of something like 30 times in that one stretch? So, I mean, it was utter sheer domination. The Patriots had tormented Buffalo Bills fans for a very long time, such that many of our kids had grown up never knowing anything good about their football team. As unfortunate as that might be, up until recently, suddenly a quarterback arrives. Who knew? You needed a quarterback, right? Suddenly a quarterback arrives. He turns out to be pretty good. Their quarterback had left. Tom Brady goes to another place and wins the Super Bowl with another team. Suddenly a complete reversal of fortunes where now the Bills are on the upswing. The Patriots are on the downswing, except in the earlier part of this year in a snow hurricane in Buffalo, the Patriots managed to squeak out a very weird win where their quarterback threw the ball all of three times in the entire game, as if this was the 1920s all over again. Yet the Patriots seem to wrest control. And if you can understand why Buffalo Bills fans, after this 20-year period, suddenly this spasm of worry, this this battered Buffalo fan syndrome started to creep in, whereas, oh my God, the Bills, this is the Bills' time. This is Buffalo's time. And all of a sudden, the Patriots are going to beat us and win the division again, as if this is all a recurring nightmare that we're going to experience. And that set up the season finale or the penultimate season finale where rematch number one with the Patriots before then meeting again in the playoffs this past weekend, which everybody around Western New York or a fair number of people around Buffalo were in unusual trepidation about Bill Belichick. He's going to come up with some genius plan that's going to thwart all of our best dreams and hopes and boy, the Patriots are going to win again and we're going to have to experience the same sort of torment and loss that we have over the last 20 years. And oh, by the way, there aren't any chicken wings. And I just said chicken wings. And I started calling buffalo wings and chicken wings. So it seemed as if everything that was going right, now the world is all early December. It seems like it all could just fall apart in all the worst possible way. What about the perfect We're going to get into the economics, but Jeff, come on. What about the perfect game? There's yeah, also so that. It, Spoiler alert, let's fast forward to what actually happened. The Bills beat the Patriots not once, but twice in a row, first to win the division at the end of the regular season in a game in which they never punted once. And then the playoff game last Saturday, which they trounced the Patriots in a very satisfying fashion in a way that has never happened before in the entirety of NFL history, which is the team never once kicked they didn't punt. They didn't turn it over. They didn't even get sacked or lose yards on any play hmm. and instead scored a touchdown And every single time they had the ball save the final kneel downs at the end. So, yes, it was great. It was fantastic. Buffalo was actually involved in another somewhat no-kick game or almost perfect game, kind of, in a sense. In 1992-1993, when they played the 49ers, they went to San Francisco and that was the first time in NFL history that neither team punted. Neither team, yes. And you remember, both those teams were fantastic. So it was an absolute light show. I love that game. I still remember it. And here we are again, Buffalo involved in a very neat, perfect offensive explosion. One for the ages. Fantastic. And thankfully, there were enough wings to go around the country. There was no wing shortage. So we were able to enjoy our victory with the in the only way that's fitting which is a huge, humongous pile of especially hot wings. Now, so there was a shortage late last year in there December. Was, yes, McDonald's, that was not made up. Kentucky Fried Chicken, Tyson's, Costco, Publix, all of them announced some sort of reduction in the availability of chicken tenders. But 
according to the National Chicken Council, which only ranks below the FBI in importance in the in American society, the National Chicken Council, they said there are trucking challenges that are affecting most other industries. And quote, in the face of all these supply chain challenges, chicken production will actually be up this year. So that was fascinating. It wasn't a shortage. It was a supply chain thing. Jeff, you note that last December, the price of a chicken breast tender went to $3.98 from an already $3. That was another thing that was sort of, there is a benchmark chicken tender breast, you know, breast meat chicken tender, which I I didn't know either. Oh, I know about it. I'm triple levered. The benchmark uh, chicken tender. Chicken tender in, benchmark. Index. That's the next major product. And like, forget Dogecoin and all these meme coins. Chicken breast or breast meat tender benchmark futures. That's that's where the money's going to be at. This is truly a potpourri show. Okay. So, but you know what, Jeff? You well, know issue, why? I mean, Go ahead. As the National Chicken Council said, don't blame us. This is not our fault. We have the chickens. They're there. In fact, we have more chickens this year than we or last year than we had the year before. So the prices have gone up, not because there aren't chickens, is because it's so much more difficult and inefficient to move chicken where it needs to go, causing all of these regional problems as well as product problems. So in early December, when we had this possibility of a chicken wing shortage, it was not because there weren't chickens. It was because supply has become very inelastic for regional and temporary seasonal demand. And there's just not the same fluid situation in terms of moving goods around all across the supply chain across the country that allows stores to be stocked fully all the time. Jeff, I suspect that you're using this small example as an analogy, as a as a metaphor for the wider problem in the you're global economy. You're, you're, you've, you've figured it out. <laughs> Are you saying that Corotta, Lagarde, and Powell had nothing to do with the increase in chicken breast prices? Is that what you're saying? I think it's unequivocal. I mean, the fact that that there actually was a chicken tender and chicken wing shortage in December is a perfect encapsulation demonstration illustration of that fact. Prices are not being caused by money printing, the money printer go burr thing. They're not being caused by, you know, economic factors. They're being caused by these non-economic impositions, which have created supply shocks and shortages. They have nothing to do with the monetary system whatsoever. So it's not necessarily inflation. It's not inflation at all. Consumer prices are adjusting in economic ways to non-economic problems. I'm going to read a quote here by U.S. Tre- Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg? I think I it's Buttigieg Edge. I'm not sure. Boot Edge Edge. Quote, there's no question that when you have a scarcity of access to shipping, you're going to see upward pressure on prices. Apparently, he didn't get the memo from the Fed. Okay. And that's going to be part of our challenge when it comes to Inflation. Jeff, didn't Milton Friedman say that inflation is always and everywhere a railroad, cargo containers, and truckers phenomenon? I think he said that in the 50s before revising himself in the 60s and saying it was a monetary phenomenon. But as you know, I mean, mean, people complain about our show all the time, or at least complain about me all the time, because I insist on using the textbook definition of inflation as defined by Friedman, when as the transportation secretary, Pete, there used the term inflation, as I think most people around the world do, around certainly in the mainstream do, which is they think it's interchangeable with any time consumer prices rise for any reason. And I think that's wrong because it, the reason it's wrong is because in, by doing so, by making this inflation term interchangeable, 
it destroys our ability to answer the question of why, where does it come from? What is the reason for it? If it's actual inflation, monetary inflation, to use your term, which I still hate nails on a chalkboard, that means something very different than if it's because we can't get truckers to go to the port of Long Beach because they don't want to wait in long lines because they get paid by a single load rather than by the hour. That's a very different thing, very different thing with very different set of implications as well as cause and effect. You quoted a friend of the show, John Dysart of the Financial Times, perhaps anecdotal, but somebody who's in the industry, an expert, who said, this is what Dysart is saying, quote, Lars Jensen, a container specialist with Vespucci Maritime in Copenhagen, did very well during the pandemic. I caught him in Kenya just as he was disconnecting from the grid for a long anticipated safari. Sounds so romantic to be a British journalist of finance, or at least living in Britain, at least writing for a British paper in Paris. Paris. Yes, he's in Paris, France, writing for the London Financial Times, talking to a guy going on safari in Africa. My point stands, romantic. You're right. What a charmed life. This is a real glory of a show. (laughs) I would, okay, quote, here's what uh, Mr. Jensen said, the container expert specialist. I would agree with you that it's over. Uh, what was he saying that it's over the supply chain imbalances and at least the upward slope of it the mm-hmm. the so the massive pressures that in the container business caused container prices to skyrocket from around two thousand dollars per forty forty foot container to around ten thousand dollars per container that's the global benchmark by the peak last summer and on the specific Asia East Asia China to U S West Coast routes. Container prices went from about $2,000 a little bit less in the summer of 2020 to the summer of 2021, where they were 18000 And by September 2021, we're over $20,000 per container. The expert that Mr. Dysard was quoting was saying was like, yeah, that upswing, that's probably over. We've seen the best days. It doesn't mean everything just goes right back to normal, but it means things are starting to be worked out. We're starting to see the downside of the supply chain issues. And yes, it's incredible mess. It still is, and it's causing headaches, obviously, when we have a December 2021 chicken shortage. So it's still not completely sorted out, but all of that craziness is maybe behind us. If I had known about that chicken shortage, I would have done something about it because here in the Cayman Islands, there's chickens everywhere. They're just walking around down the street. It's perfectly normal on the sidewalks. Man, I could have made so much money, but I was already long the chicken tender index. Jeff, the article is called The PBOC is Doing the Opposite of the Federal Reserve. I guess all of this leads up to us saying supply chain demand imbalances causing price increases, not monetary inflation. Federal Reserve, you don't get it. You're raising rates for marketing, publicity, narrative purposes. Meanwhile, the PBOC is doing the opposite. What are they doing? which the Chinese, you remember, are on the other side of all of this, which is they're the ones making all the goods, trying to stuff it into the supply chain, including containers, because that was one of their short-sighted solutions out of expedience, which was if we can't, if we can't get a hold of containers because they're so, they're so hard to get, they get stuck in the United States, they just started making them. They just started making them by the hundreds of thousands because it was economical to do so at these prices. And that only made things worse because what ended up happening is during the COVID crisis and port problems, especially in the West Coast, empty containers just piled up at the ports. They didn't get put back onto boats and shipped back to China to be reused and come back here. 
it just became a one-way conveyor or a one-way mess where the just-in-time situation just completely broke down, specifically with containers, but also the wider logistical change, railroads, and respect. there's a bottleneck in Chicago that I don't think has been worked out yet. There are East, East Coast port issues too. But your point that you just made, Emil, is exactly what we're trying to get at here, which is what is the Fed doing? The Fed is saying we need to be hawkish because they believe that the supply chain issues are going to stick around maybe a little bit longer, or maybe they've stuck around already too much, and that consumers are going to acclimatize to these high levels of CPI, and therefore expectations are going to change. Even though, as we talked about in a previous episode, there's absolutely no evidence anywhere in the historical record that inflation expectations play any role in inflation whatsoever. But the Fed, because it doesn't do money, has to rely on something. So they're saying maybe people are going to normalize the high CPIs. We better start hiking rates and doing all these hawkish policies. Meanwhile, on the opposite side of the planet, over in China, where this economic stuff actually begins, the supply chain issues as well as the production of goods and material, the Chinese are doing the exact opposite. They are lowering interest rates because they are very concerned about the economic shape of not just China, but the global economy as a whole. China has its own problems in the real estate sector, obviously. But if the global economy and the trade of goods, especially the one-way trade of goods to the United States, starts to slow down too, you might imagine why the PBOC is taking a very different approach to 2022 than Jay Powell and the Fed. So what the PBOC has done Starting in December, it cut the, the RRR rate, which we've already talked about. That was the second cut. That's a warning sign. And then they cut the, something called the loan prime rate for the first time in December. And then this week, they cut it again, along with a reduction in the rate for the medium-term financing or MLF window, which shows that the PBOC is starting to get a little bit itchy because communist authorities over there have said it looks like economic growth has gone outside of our tolerances or maybe in danger of going to the downside outside of our tolerances. And we need to start fine-tuning in the opposite way of what everybody's thinking in the West. If only the Federal Reserve had someone on staff who had written a paper in September of 2021 that questioned inflation expectations and their importance in policy-making decisions, maybe they wouldn't be making this what will almost certainly be Another policy mistake of raising rates only to have to fall backwards in, uh, I don't know, how many months or years soon enough. Of course, I'm joking, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremy B. Rudd, September 2021. Why do we think that inflation expectations matter for inflation? And should we? Jeff, anything else from this article or anything in this last week that you wanted to bring up? Before we wrap up the show, just wrapping the entire segment or the entire show together with the previous two segments, what we're really saying here is that supply chain issues, CPI, the Fed is hiking rates because they think of this expectations policy when in terms of the yield curve, in terms of the inverted euro dollar futures curve, the markets are saying we're more worried like China than we are worried about inflation like like the United States. So that's the conflict of interest rates of the yield curve, as well as the euro dollar futures curve, which is the Fed making the same mistake it always makes, which is overestimating economic strength, overestimating inflationary pressures because of its fundamental misunderstanding of the monetary condition, as well as how to read the economic situation. So all of it together, we've got all these weird stuff, things happening, but in the, at the end of the day, we have the yield curve. We have the euro dollar futures curve. We've got the bond market to help guide us in interpreting what's actually happening. Well, I wish your team the best of luck this weekend, Sunday afternoon, right? 
Jeff, in Kansas City, Arrowhead, the site of last year's uh, AFC Championship game. Possibly the two best teams in the league. They'll be meeting in the semifinals. No, no, the quarterfinals. Uh, I wish I wish you the best, Jeff. Are you going to watch it or? Oh, absolutely. Gonna... Hopefully there will be <laughs> buffalo wings available. And hopefully they're cheaper too. All right. Well, enjoy, Jeff. Thanks very much, Emil. Take care. <laughs>